Luke chapter 11, and we're still in the Lord's Prayer. Thought I might have finished it today and then caught myself on. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, let me read them. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, that's as far as we got last time, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation." Again, if it sounds slightly unfamiliar, it's because Luke's version is not exactly the same as Matthew's version, because Jesus probably taught the prayer on multiple occasions. Now, it seems so simple, doesn't it? This 38-word prayer in, in Luke chapter 11, do we really need two weeks on it? Actually, do we really need three weeks on it as it's going to end up? And I think we do, because I think many of us, myself included, struggle with prayer. 25 years of doing this nearly every day and I still feel like I should be better at it than I am. I find the discipline of Bible reading not that difficult. I usually at some stage during the year fall behind a bit in the reading plan and need to get the old audio Bible fired up in the mornings to get caught up. But on the whole, the discipline of Bible reading is, is okay uh, the, the discipline of uh, fellowship, the discipline of getting up in the morning and making time for prayer. I can do that. <laughs> um, I'm like a farmer with no animals. Getting up early in the morning is just, it just happens. Uh, but sometimes I'll get up early and an hour later I'll think, what actually happened there? My mind went everywhere. I was distracted. We struggle with prayer. Dallas Willard says... Many people make little progress in learning to pray simply because they have not seriously entered into Jesus' answer to the specific or the explicit request, teach us to pray. So Jesus has very clearly outlined a structure, a framework for having conversation with God. And I think every one of us, our prayer lives will benefit just from giving some attention for a few weeks to what he had to say. Some people pray through the Lord's Prayer every morning and they'll find on one particular morning they might linger long and hallowed be your name. And on a different morning they might linger long on your kingdom come. And another morning they might linger long on, on lead us not into temptation. And they'll use it as a, as a structure for prayer and just find a certain emphasis each day. Some people would take Matthew's longer version and split it up into seven parts and focus on one part in their prayer time each day of the week. There's lots of ways that you can use this, but I do believe Jesus gave it to us as a structure to be used and it cannot be improved on. Last week we talked about Father, that word Abba. <clears throat> not last week, two weeks ago, and uh, saw two things that the word Father would have have brought together in the mind of of a Jew in the first century. One, the intimacy of a child with a parent. This is how God invites us to approach him. 
and to the phenomenal power of the God of the Exodus, because that's where he first revealed himself as father and and said that his people were his son. And I believe the order of the prayer is important. Um, Like the Bible, we start with God. In the beginning, God, I'm croaking. (laughs) We'll blame last night's shenanigans with the Belfast Giants for that. Um, Yeah, we start with God. In the beginning, God. The Ten Commandments start with God. The first four commandments are about our relationship and our connection with God. And then the, the remaining six are more about one another. And it's the same with this prayer. There are times I come to pray and I have things on my mind that I want to pray for. I want to bring them before God. And I don't want to take time to hallow his name. And I don't want to take time to, to sort of declare for his kingdom to come. I just find myself wanting to jump forward and pray for the thing that's on my mind. Thank you. Look at him. He knows. But the order is important. We start off fixing our gaze on God, worshipping him, adoring him. And I maybe come to prayer and there is something in particular that I want to bring to God. A person who is sick, a person who is in need, a person who is struggling, whatever. And I want to bring them to God. And whenever I spend time hallowing his name, we'll talk about that in a minute. Praying his kingdom come, we'll talk about that. What happens is that person and their need does not become smaller. It does not become insignificant in any way, shape or form. But I have my gaze so fixed on Father God, who is huge and who is sovereign and who is holy and who has a kingdom, that then as I go to pray for that specific need, I've got all my perspectives right. Only Matthew adds in Father in heaven. Luke just has Father. Uh, And just to make a note on what Matthew says here, when I was a kid, this is what I thought of when I thought our Father in heaven. I thought a galaxy far, far away. For the uninitiated, that's from the start of Star Wars, just in case you're like not not quite in there. Um, But but for me, Father was, was great, but he was so far away. He was a million, million, million miles away. He was way off beyond the solar system, far, far away. And that is not the Jewish view of heaven at all. The Jewish view of heaven is that heaven is all around us. Heaven couldn't be closer. It couldn't be closer. It is unseen. It is veiled. It is hidden. But the presence of God is all around his people. And that heaven and earth, God always intended for heaven and earth to overlap with each other, to be one. And the temple was seen as a place where that happened. In behind that veil, the veil was embroidered to look like the sky. And in behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, where people would, the priest would encounter the presence of God, that was the overlap of heaven and earth. So whenever we pray, Father in heaven, if we pray that, don't be thinking that means he's miles away. He's very, very close. Hallowed be your name. We're only going to deal with two petitions or two parts of the Lord's Prayer today. Hallowed be your name being the the first one. And it seems a bit weird this way to start. This word hallowed, what does it mean? It means means to revere, to honor, to, to make holy, to hold in high regard. 
And Jesus himself lived and died for the Father's name. In, in John 17, where you read what could also be called the Lord's Prayer, because this is where we really get a close, close insight into the prayers of Jesus himself. In John 17, he says to his Father, I have revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. That does not just mean that he, Jesus told them some sort of secret name that God has. It means that Jesus revealed the character of God to them. And he goes on in that prayer at the end to say, Righteous Father, see how he's praying himself in the way that he's told us to pray. Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them. To speak of someone's name is to speak of their character. To pray for God's name to be hallowed is for his character, his reputation to be revealed. For people to see who he really is. And also for you and I as we pray to lay hold on that character of God. To spend time as we begin praying, not just coming with our shopping list. And I don't know how many times the first word of my prayer is not Father, it's help. You know, because I just am in a fix and I need God to do something. But to spend time actually focusing on the names and the character of God. God is not his name. God is not his name. He's not called God. God is a descriptive word. It's not a name. His name is Yahweh, Jehovah. That's the, the name by which he revealed himself. And I'm not going to go through them because there's a whole sermon series in itself. But what name of God do you need to focus on when you're praying? When you come in your current situation or corporately as a church, what, what name of God do you need to, to focus on? Is it Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is my peace? Is it Yahweh Rapha, the Lord that heals? Is that the name of God that, needs, that you want to see hallowed in your life and in your situation or the situation of someone else? Is it Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide? Again, not just for you, and we'll talk about this next week and give us today our, our daily bread. Do you need to lay hold on the provider? Is that the name of God that you need to see hallowed? What about Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, or as Eugene Peterson puts it, God of the angel armies? And you just need the might of God to come and fight your battles for you. Is that the name of God that you need to see hallowed? Or Yahweh Shammah, this lovely one from the very last couple of verses of the book of Ezekiel. The Lord is there and you just want to know his presence. Hallowed be thy name. We're praying for God's character to be revealed. When Jesus in John 12 realizes that his hour has come, he, he, he sort of puts forward the question, how, how should I pray? What am I going to say to Father? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Show the world your character. The ultimate glory of God is the cross. That is where the character of God is most perfectly revealed in Jesus. Self-giving love. That's the character. And Jesus wants that name of God to be known. And we should as well. There's a song. Oh, I can't remember the exact words of it. I should because we've sang it enough times to know. But the Good Good Father song. And um, I've heard many 
I've heard many of what I've heard many stories. That's the one. Oh, it's a hard word that to remember, isn't it? I've heard many stories of what they think you're like. Yeah. Many stories, many people out in the world and they have a view of God that is completely and utterly twisted, warped, wrong, unbiblical. He's a good, good father. Hallowed be your name is a prayer that the world would see the character of God. That our community, that our families, that our, our, that our friends in school, that our workmates, that they would see. As I pray that, it's not just some random old-fashioned thing that you do when you start praying. But as I pray that, I'm saying, Lord, let your character be revealed through me and to others. And we're reminded a bit of a, another incident where somebody came into the presence of God and was just blown away by his holiness. Hallowed be your name. May your name be revered. May it be exalted. May it be magnified. Isaiah, when he entered the presence of God in his great vision in Isaiah chapter 6, what he heard was the angels all singing, holy, holy, holy. It's a great way to start praying and to, to really just get your eyes and your heart filled with the magnitude and the wonder and the holiness of God. He hates the things that you hate. He hates the sickness that you want to bring before him. He hates the sin and the brokenness in, in someone's life that you want to bring before him. He hates the poverty and the lack that you want to be, bring before him. Get focused on his character, his holiness. Pray back, not just the names of God, but some of the things that we know in the Old Testament about the character of God. Here's one of the great places to, to pray. Psalm 18, the first couple of verses. Just a whole blast of things about the character of God. What do you need? What part of God's name of his character do you need to see hallowed? I love you, Lord, my strength. We've prayed that in the prayer meeting so much this past few weeks. God, my strength. The Lord is my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Which one do you want? <laughs> you know, maybe today it would be one thing and maybe tomorrow or Thursday it'll be something different. But this, this, this beginning of the prayer is that Cry in that laying hold on the character of God. What about laying hold on the creator as he reveals himself, the one who brings order out of chaos? What about the redeemer, the great father of the exodus who delivers people from oppression? What about Jesus? What about that name? <laughs> that wonderful name that means he will save his people from their sins. What name do you need to see hallowed as you pray? It's a good sort of <clears throat> calibration exercise to do every morning. And I would say do this in the morning. You may have your longer prayer time some other time or split over the day. But I would say to you in the morning, it would be good practice to say at some stage when you're grinding the beans, you know, or when you're feeding the dog or when you're getting ready to say, Father, may I hallow no other name today. No other name. Not my name not my reputation, not any other name, not any idol, not running after money, not running after prestige, not running after... May no other name be hallowed this day except your name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. 
And that's where many of us need. You know, we are children. And children sometimes just need somewhere to run and hide and be safe and be secure. And the name of the Lord in Proverbs 18.10 is a strong tower. You begin your praying and you focus on the name. This is where I'm running to. I'm running to Father who is a strong tower. And I'm in that stronghold. I'm in that place where I am safe from the things that threaten me. So that's the second part of the prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. The next part is your kingdom come. I don't think there are three more awesome words that you can pray than those. Now, I might change my mind next week when we get to the next part of this. But those are, those are words of utter revolution. They really are. And I don't think, you know, for, for several years now, I don't, I don't know that I've ever gone to prayer and not at some stage during prayer whether it's corporately or on my own, at some stage uttered those three words. That is a declaration of war. (laughs) Your kingdom come. To understand God's kingdom a little bit, I'm going to be refreshing some stuff that we've done before, um, but we haven't done it for a while. In fact, it was Easter Sunday last year. There's a lot of of, um, worldviews that just see history as a series of chance events and don't see history as moving towards any defined goal or end. And, and if history itself has no real purpose and no structure and no point, no beginning, no design, if, if the future has no end goal and there's no purpose there, then what do people do in between is they just live lives that have no purpose. In fact, the only purpose of their lives is my kingdom come. <laughs> People who, who do not follow Jesus, who, do, who are not seeing God's plan of salvation and redemption moving towards a goal, all they're interested in is themselves. Selfishness, building their own kingdom. That is their, their motto, my kingdom come. But the Hebrew view of, of time is that it's moving towards an end goal. They saw, they saw creation and the present age that they were living in, and they believed that there was a future age called the kingdom of God. And one of the markers that would bring in that future age would be the resurrection of the dead. Dallas Willard describes God's kingdom, if you want a simple definition of the kingdom of God, He says, God's kingdom, it's not a place. It's not like a geographical territory somewhere on earth. And it's not even a people. We're part of it. God's kingdom is the domain where what he prefers is actually what happens. God's kingdom is where things are done the way God wants them done. That's his kingdom. And that's a big encompassing definition. But the Hebrew people had this view of time that they were living in the present age, that at the end of that age, there was a future kingdom that would come. It would be brought in by the Messiah. He would reverse the events of the fall. People would be forgiven. That would be a sign of the kingdom. Forgiveness. Because the people had gone into exile. 
And the reason they'd gone into exile in Babylon was because of their sins. And they were looking for a future time when they would be forgiven for their sins. On that day, that future day, when the kingdom comes, people would be forgiven. People would be filled with the Holy Spirit. On that day, evil would be destroyed and death would be destroyed and sin would be destroyed. And there would be a resurrection from the dead on that day. And that's what would split the two ages. The present age that we are now currently living in and the future age of the kingdom of God. That was their view of history. The Jewish worldview was not a worldview where time was just this higgledy-piggledy mess of accidents. Which is a horrible way to live because then every one of us is just a higgledy-piggledy accident as well. A bunch of molecules that have just somehow come together and started breathing and talking and stuff. Which is all a bit weird. But then something crazy happens. And there's a resurrection in the middle of time in this present age. They expected it to be at the end and then the kingdom of God. But then this guy Jesus is raised from the dead and they have to rethink everything because the future kingdom of God, according to Jesus, has now broken into the present. The ages are overlapping. It is no longer just a linear, this present age and a resurrection and then the kingdom of God. No, they have now overlapped in Jesus. And that is one of the most important theological things you will ever hear. And it is phenomenal how many Christians don't know this. Have no concept of how the kingdom of God has broken in in the incarnation of Jesus and in his death and resurrection and in his life and ministry, that the kingdom has come. That's why Jesus, whenever he went about preaching in, in Mark chapter 1, 15, the first words that come out of his mouth in that gospel, the first words, the time has come, he said. No, hang on, this time's a way off in the future. No, he says, no, the time has come now. Wake up, people, he says. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near now. In me, the kingdom has, is overlapping with time. It has broken in. The future has broken into the present. And that's why the gospel writers then record a series of Jesus' deeds, such as giving sight to the blind. That doesn't happen. That's a future thing. That's the kingdom. Jesus said, no, it's happening now because the kingdom has come. He causes the lame to walk. He cleanses lepers. He liberates those who are held captive by demons. He heals the sick. He befriends prostitutes. He calms the storm. He feeds the hungry. He champions the powerless. And he stands in solidarity with the poor. That is the kingdom of God. That's a quote from Daryl Johnson. All of these things are signs in Jesus' ministry within the current age that the kingdom of God has broken in. What they were looking forward to at the end has broken into the present and is happening in Jesus. He unites people who the world divides. He includes women in his disciples. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He fills people with the Spirit. He raises the dead and he triumphs over the grave. That's the kingdom of God. And it has broken in from the future into the present. So the kingdom of God has come. And yet, he says in Luke 22 and in other places as well, Luke 22, 18, at the Last Supper, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So has it come? Has it not come? Is it coming? What? 
he said when he when he started his ministry he said it has come and yet he says it has not come and the way theologians and bible bible scholars have put this uh, throughout i don't know how long they've been using this phrase already but not yet now if you don't know that know it <laughs> if you've never thought about it think about it ponder it read gordon fee read tom wright read basically anybody even in the modern uh, sort of influx of 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 really high quality young preachers like john tyson and john mark comer and tyler staten and mark sayers and loads of them the kingdom of god is already come in jesus it already broke in but it is not yet fully consummated it is not yet fully revealed and where we live in the church age is there we're in between the ages we're in the overlap the present age is continuing obviously we see it all around us but the kingdom has broken in and the two are existing side by side and it is so important that we know that there's there's some things in theology and in understanding the scriptures and in understanding the in, in the you know the ministry and the life of jesus the gospel, the whole thing. There are some things that are just non-negotiable. You've got to know them. And this is one. The kingdom has come. It is already here, but not yet fully here. And what Daryl Johnson says is that when the kingdom fully comes, God will fully unveil to the world what is already true. The crucified carpenter is on the throne of the universe the king and we really then get to the heart of what jesus is telling us to pray when he says your kingdom come we get to the heart of it we get to the heart of his parables where he keeps talking about small things that come in and cause big differences like seeds and leaven and treasure hidden in a field and a pearl he says the kingdom of god is like all of these things they're small and they seem insignificant, but they're working great, powerful change within whatever they are mixed with. The king has come. And when we pray this prayer, we're praying that God would visibly manifest himself. We're praying for the breakthrough of the kingdom more and more in our time. And when Matthew adds, your will be done on heaven as it is on earth, it's just the same thing. It's not like, I don't think that's a different request. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Same thing. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think those are wildly different. I don't think we need to tease those apart and, and make them separate. I think they are the same. So is God king or not at the end of all of this? You know, how can we talk about him? Is God on the throne of the universe? Is he going to be on the throne of the universe in the future? The issue is that although God is king, although Jesus is king, there are other kingdoms. There are other kingdoms. There are kingdoms of sickness, and there are kingdoms of poverty, and there are kingdoms of abuse, and there are kingdoms of oppression, and there are kingdoms of addiction, and there are kingdoms of all sorts of things. Kingdoms of brokenness, kingdoms of pain, kingdoms of, of relationships that are not 
what we want them to be. There are all sorts of kingdoms that rise up against God. And even though he is king, Babylon, Rome, whatever it may be, rises up against him and does not accept his kingship, does not accept his authority. We read in Paul about these forces. In Ephesians 6.12, our struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, other kingdoms, other powers, authorities, powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And he also says in 2 Corinthians, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in prayer. (laughs) We demolish arguments and every pretension, every imagination that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Whenever we're praying, your kingdom come, we're also praying other kingdoms go. These are three of the most powerful words you can ever utter in prayer because there are other kingdoms all around us and they need to go. They need to be displaced. A greater, a stronger man needs to come. We'll we'll get to there soon enough in Luke chapter 11, the stronger man who comes and displaces the strong man. Your kingdom come, other kingdoms go. All around us in society, there is the influence of other kingdoms on people's lives, wrecking them. And as a church and as individuals, we need to be praying, God, let your kingdom come and push back the darkness, push back every other kingdom that is trying to take its place. This this prayer, this your kingdom come, this is spiritual warfare. Some people maybe look at Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer and he doesn't include the line, deliver us from evil, and they think there's no spiritual warfare. There is. This is spiritual warfare. Your kingdom come. The flip side of that is the devil's kingdom needs to go. And there's there's a great verse in, in Isaiah 52, verse 7, where the context is, The kingdom that is opposing God's people is Babylon. And Babylon is being overthrown. And God's people are being called prophetically to come out and to come back home to Zion, to Jerusalem. And and 52.7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet, imagine that. Who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, what is the message? What is the the good news that causes people to look at somebody's feet and say, your feet are beautiful because you are bringing this incredible message. (laughs) You're bringing this incredible message. What is the message? Your God reigns. Kingdom come. (laughs) Babylon fallen because the king is coming. And according to to Tom Wright, every Sabbath was thought of as a sign and a foretaste of God becoming king. Part of the Jewish celebration of Sabbath involved a a sense of of just for a moment the future kingdom was being glimpsed. 
as, as they remembered God's work of creation being finished and his day of rest, they would celebrate and they would think about the future kingdom on the Sabbath day. I never knew this before, but I don't think Tom made it up. Every Sabbath was thought of as a sign and a foretaste of God becoming king. Now think about it. Every Sabbath, a sign and a foretaste that God was becoming king. Every Sabbath, God becoming king. Do you know somebody who got in lots of trouble for the stuff that he did on the Sabbath? Over and over again, Jesus in trouble on the Sabbath because he healed someone on the Sabbath. He set someone free on the Sabbath. He allowed his disciples to pluck the, the, the grain on the Sabbath. He did all of these things on the Sabbath, not, not just to, to sort of get in the face of the religious people, but he's making a declaration. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The King has come. I'm sure there were times that Jesus sat on Friday. The Sabbath is Saturday. And I'm sure there are times he sat on Friday and thought, I wonder what I'll do tomorrow to let them know that the kingdom has come. I wonder who I'll heal tomorrow. I could heal. I know this guy is going to be sitting out on the street and I could heal him today. But you know what? I'm going to wait. I'm going to heal him tomorrow so that they'll know that the kingdom has come. And the kingdom of blindness or the kingdom of leprosy or the kingdom of demonic oppression is going to have to go because a new king has come, the Lord of the Sabbath, King Jesus, to set people free. Every time we pray this prayer, I'm nearly done. Every time we pray this prayer, we are, we are asking for the new age to break in. I believe God heals people. I don't believe he heals everybody. I believe he calls us to pray for the sick and to, and to pray in faith and to leave it to his sovereignty to what he does in answer to our prayers. And I believe whenever God heals somebody, you've just seen the kingdom break in. I believe when somebody gets born again, the kingdom breaks in. When somebody is set free from demonic oppression, the kingdom has just broken in one more time. When someone is set free from addiction, a purposeless, wasted life, just floating towards no particular end, the kingdom has broken in. That's why when we pray, we should be praying over and over again, Lord, in this situation for this sick person, this addicted person, this broken person, this hurting person, this person in poverty, whatever it is, this town with demonic strongholds in it, whatever they may be, that we're praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let's see the kingdom that we know has already come in Jesus. And we know that the two ages are existing side by side. Just say, Lord, just open the heavens and let the kingdom come. Come, let it break in in this particular instance. Let us see a foretaste of the future breaking into the present. Every time we pray that, we're asking for the future to come and break in one more time. And we get a glimpse of the future in Revelation 21 and 22. I think a lot of, a lot of people, we, we give up with Revelation before we get to the end. We get bogged down in the frogs. <laughs> And, and the other stuff that's going on in the teens of Revelation. But when you get to the end, you get a glimpse of the kingdom. 21, 4 and 5, what will happen in that kingdom? Every tear will be wiped from every eye. Some of you may well have shed a tear this week that nobody saw. You're broken about something. And you're hurting about something. 
And in that kingdom, he will wipe away every tear. And we pray your kingdom come. Lord, come and do it now. Come and wipe away those tears now, Lord. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Those things will always exist in the current age, even though the kingdom has come. Those things will always exist. But when we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, we pray that that in some particular circumstance that these things would be delayed or would not happen. But in the future kingdom, they will not exist. The old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, that will be a king, says, I am making everything new. Your kingdom come. Powerful words of revolution. (coughs) Powerful words. Jesus took his disciples frequently out to the hills around Galilee. And again, I learned this from Tom Wright. If, if, you, if you gathered together a band of men and you spent time out in the hills, it wasn't because you just liked the wild side a wee bit and you liked to rough it with the boys. It's because you were plotting revolution. You were plotting revolution. And Jesus plotted revolution by taking these people and teaching them to pray, let your kingdom come. And it's a cry and I've influenced, I don't always, I usually don't, but today I've influenced the, the song choices a bit because as I've thought about this, just songs have come to my mind, like we need to sing that in light of this and then we'll understand it better. Whenever we say that, let, let your kingdom come, we're saying, I know there will be a day, there will be a day in the future that, that, that all of these things will happen, but let it be today. Pray, God, let your kingdom come. Let it break in. Let it be today. We're praying for heaven to invade and occupy earth. Pray this for your loved ones. There is a kingdom. There is a king. And still some of my favorite words that we ever sing in this place are the words that you have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Let your kingdom come. His kingdom has come in my life. He reigns. There are times my little kingdom tries to rise up and I let your kingdom come so my kingdom doesn't. But these songs, I sometimes don't give enough credit to, to Christian songwriters because you know, I've heard some things that, that aren't fabulous, but you know, sometimes you meditate in a message like this and you're like, my goodness me, that person was writing under the power of the Holy Spirit to write those words. Amazing. Let these words permeate your prayer life. And I believe we will see great things happen. Let's worship.